Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, October 3rd, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writer Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Okay, let's dive into it because we have a lot of news from today and yesterday to get to. Let's start first with uh, studios losing rights to popular franchises. Uh, some big-name franchises could be on the chopping block. Brad, what do we know? Well, uh, a lot of your favorite franchises from the 1980s could be switching hands uh, because the rights might end up back in the hands of those who created the stories that inspired the movies. Uh, franchises like Terminator and Beetlejuice and Predator and Nightmare on Elm Street, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, all these properties are in the middle of a, I guess, uh, sort of a, an entanglement uh, due to a law that um, was amended by Congress back in the late 1970s that allows authors and creators uh, of material to seek back the rights to their work uh, from those who bought the rights to adapt, publish them, what have you, 35 years after they were published. So it's 2019. That means uh, 1984 movies like Terminator <clears throat> and Nightmare on Elm Street are part of this new uh, effort by creators to get their properties back. And what likely this is really just an effort by these people to get a new payday for these properties because since the rights are situated to the studios, they don't really get uh, you know more money every time a, a new title is published based on their original work. So, for example, Gail Ann Hurd, who wrote the original Terminator, uh, already filed a termination of copyright uh, notice to get the rights to Terminator uh, back from Skydance Media, who picked them up from Megan Ellison in 2011 for about $20 million. So uh, with this notice, Skydance potentially may lose the right to make Terminator movies starting in November 2020. And since they're hoping that Terminator Dark Fate will start a new trilogy later this year, that could be trouble for them. 
Um, and then you know, Gary K. Wolf is the writer behind the book that inspired Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He's looking to do the same thing. Wait, does uh, this Roger mean we could get like a Roger Rabbit movie that's out from outside of Disney? It's possible, but it's probably not likely. Yeah. What I, I um I'm what I'm betting is that like what we'll see is that we'll just see studios renegotiating with a lot of these authors and writers to just buy the rights again uh, with a whole new deal. Uh, so I, I don't think that we'll see it switch hands, but there might be some properties out there that maybe aren't uh, seen as lucrative as they used to be for certain studios. So we might see certain titles uh, get a new home, you know, if, if that's what happens. But like, what's interesting is that some of these studios might look into fast tracking projects based on certain properties just so they can hold on to them because the termination notice apparently uh, allows kind of like a two year grace period where they can either make something that uh, keeps their their rights alive, essentially, or they lose them. So um, one of one of these recent instances actually involves Pet Cemetery, and apparently Pet Cemetery was only remade because Stephen King Stephen King had sought to get the rights back. Interesting. So it's going to be interesting to see in the coming years because there's a lot of films. Film franchises that started in the mid '80s to, to late '80s that uh, I'm sure would fall under this whole mess of uh, rights. So yeah, and this is something that that'll continue as time goes on too, because it'll always be a new you know year that 35 years has passed for certain properties, uh, and you know so we'll we'll see how that goes in the in the coming years. Yeah, uh, just as it was gonna be, it would be weird to see Roger Rabbit. In, in from in a movie on Roger Rabbit from a different studio other than Disney, it would have been weird to see Tom Holland not as Spider-Man in the MCU. And thankfully, that did not happen. You know, thankfully, Disney and Sony were able to come to an agreement. But apparently, that is because of Tom Holland. Tom Holland is to thank. He is he's the re- real hero here. Uh, Chris, what do we know? Right. I mean, I, we should also add that this isn't the only reason, but um, because Tom Holland is a very nice boy with nice hair. He went to Disney. He went to Sony. He said, guys, please get together, sit back down at the table, hash things out. And apparently that worked. Uh, I mean, he's, he's he was able to leverage some of his clout be- with Sony because he's doing uh you know the uncharted movie for them so that sort of helped and he also you know showed everyone the the online reaction how everyone online was basically losing their damn minds that spider-man was no longer going to be in the mcu and apparently you know that played a really big part in both uh disney and sony going back to negotiations and uh, it also still worked out for Disney in the end because they ended up getting a better deal out of it. So I'm sure Disney is sending Tom Holland an edible arrangement as we speak. Um, well, beforehand, they were only getting something like 5% of the box office gross of the, the Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. This deal now gives them, what, like 25% or something? Yes, now they get 25%. So really... But they're also putting the money in. So right, they're investing yeah. money where they weren't before. So, right. Uh, yeah. So every everyone wins really here. I mean, Sony gets to still <laughs> have their Spider-Man movies. Marvel gets to have their Spider-Man movies. Tom Holland gets to still have a job. Every, everyone wins. In the yeah. End. And we, as a podcast, get to hear Chris complaining about Spider-Man movies. So yes, I like Spider-Man movies. I just didn't like <laughs> Far From Home. <laughs> 
Okay. Uh, speaking of Disney and the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, they are gearing up for an awards push for Avengers Endgame, which a lot of people thought they were going to uh, be pushing Robert Downey Jr. for Best Actor. But apparently that is not the case. Brad, what do we know? Yes. Uh, Avengers Endgame is the latest Marvel movie to get a four-year consideration campaign set up for awards season, which is just on the horizon. Marvel's made uh, awards pushes before for their movies, whether they were very unlikely to get nominations or not. Uh, last year's Black Panther probably has them uh, sort of reinvigorated in their quest for Oscar gold. And since Avengers Endgame is kind of this big epic culmination of the first uh, era of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I wonder if they're thinking that maybe they'll get some kind of overall recognition for the work being done, much in the same way that Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, and Peter Jackson did uh, after the the end of the trilogy came about. So uh, Disney has put up a four-year consideration page that lists the various categories they'll be trying to get nominations for. Uh, and it includes, uh, obviously, Best Picture with Kevin Feige producing, Best Director for Anthony and Joe Russo, Best Adapted Screenplay, and a lot of the, the other technical stuff for costume and sound and visual effects. But there are absolutely no... Uh, acting categories listed there, which is a surprise because, uh, uh, like you said, a lot of people had thought uh, and, and were thinking that Robert Downey Jr. would very likely be pushed for Best Actor. Uh, this He turned in uh, a great performance in Avengers Endgame. It's, it's a heartfelt one. It's a sad one because it is uh, Iron Man's departure from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And uh, it, it felt like really probably the the best bet for a Marvel movie to get an acting nomination uh, thus far, but he's not listed there. Yeah, and well, I think there's two things surprising about this. Number one, uh, for anybody that's in Hollywood that gets screeners, um, you know, I get a lot of screeners at the end of the year. Chris, I think you get some as well. Um, you know, the screeners come with a whole list of categories on the back of the screener, like, no, like basically saying for your consideration for all of these categories, and usually it's everything. It's like the entire cast is up for best actor. The entire cast is best. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it's almost like they, they're just like, they just put it out there. There's not like, it's ridiculous. You'll get a movie that has been critically panned and they're putting up the entire cast and crew for every single possible award. So it's really weird that Robert Downey Jr. isn't listed for best actor alongside some of the other actors in in this film. Do you think it's because there are so many actors in this film and they couldn't, like, you know, hurt one of the other actors' feelings? I don't, do you know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's certainly possible. I think it's also possible that maybe Robert Downey Jr. didn't want to be submitted. Maybe he didn't feel like he should be singled out, you know, from everybody else. Hmm. Um, and maybe there's also a chance, too, that Disney and Marvel merely thought that perhaps Academy voters would be split on whether Robert Downey Jr. should be considered best actor or best supporting actor, because it's uh, apparently the determination as to which category an actor ends up in is, is determined by the voters. And there's nothing that would preclude Robert Downey Jr.'s performance from being considered supporting or lead based on screen time or anything like that. So it's, wait, it's, wait, it's, would you inc would you think he's best? Uh, like, is he a supporting character in this movie or is he a lead character in this movie? I mean, I would. I think he's a lead character simply because he's one of the main Avengers, and this is kind of their their story. You know, that's why it, you know in the credits, uh, the the original Avengers are the ones who get the the different 
you know, screen credit appearance with their signature and their their yeah. silhouette and everything. Uh, so yeah, I, w- I would argue that he's a lead character, but you know, you would think that maybe if they thought he wouldn't get lead actor because it's such a huge cast and he's not in the movie for you know all um all of it or a huge chunk of it that maybe you know they could go for supporting simply because he's part of such a big ensemble. But you know, it's it's tough to say really what happened here. I'm willing to bet that we'll find out in the coming months because someone's bound to ask you know Feige yeah. or or anybody. Um, so yeah, but for now it's a mystery. Well, here, here's a question to you guys: Like, do you think that Robert Downey Jr. is even like even capable of getting a Best Actor nomination? Like, I I I think it's out of the question for him to win Best Actor, just the way the whole Academy works. But maybe he could get a nomination based on like this being kind of like a combination of you know not just the Avengers film, but you know, this whole 10 years of Mar- the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Hollywood usually, as you said, with like Return of the King and stuff, they like to celebrate that at the very end of the conclusion. Chris, is there any chance that Robert Downey Jr. could get nominated? Uh, I mean, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. The Oscars are such like a, it, you got to like play the game. And I don't know if, Robert Downey Jr. like wants to do that. He seems like the type of guy who's like, not not gonna say doesn't care, but it's more that he he would rather just not put in the effort. Like you got to do a lot of. It's like a political campaign basically, and I just can't picture him doing that. Yeah, uh, Brad, how about you? Do you do you think there's any chance of him getting a nomination in the Oscars? Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible, especially with you know how the Oscars have kind of been. Uh, starting to pay a little bit more attention to comic book movies and not considering them just, you know, mindless uh, popcorn blockbuster fare. Uh, but the, the best actor race is always a an extremely competitive one. Uh, I personally haven't seen um, a lot of, if any, of the key awards contenders that will likely um, produce best actor nominees. But I imagine if they're going to go for any comic book performance this year for a nomination, it'll probably be Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. Um, but, you know, it's anything can happen. And, you know, like uh, Avengers Endgame is the end of, you know, a huge crowning achievement for Kevin Feige. You know, an unprecedented thing that happened, you know, with blockbusters and, and movies at large. So I feel like there's maybe some kind of recognition that could come from this. But I'm just not sure that Robert Downey Jr. will will end up with an acting nod because of it. Yeah, I think for me it's it's twofold. It's number one, the Academy doesn't tends to not love comic book movies, and two, Robert Downey Jr. It, it's more of an ensemble piece. I feel like if it was a, an Iron Man film, maybe it would have a better chance of getting nominated. But we'll see. Maybe I could be wrong. Uh, but uh, you know. Speaking of Avengers Endgame, uh, it was directed by the Russo brothers. They are going on to produce a lot of uh, upcoming movies, and it seems like a lot of the Marvel directors are taking that cue from from them. You know, James Gunn is producing some movies. Ryan Coogler is going to produ- produce this new movie, uh, Bitter Root. Chris, what do we know? Yes, Bitterroot is based on a comic book uh, series, and I'll admit that I actually haven't heard of it until now, but it actually sounds very cool because um, it's about an African-American family who hunts monsters uh, during the Harlem Renaissance of 1924. That's what the, the comic is about, and that's what the film is going to be about, and that actually sounds really cool, and uh, Ryan Coogler is producing it. Um, he's not directing it, which, you know... 
anytime a project like this gets announced with a, like a, a big name producing it, I always can't help but think, like, ah, I wish he were directing it. But see, I guess he's. See, I think cynically, like, oh, it wasn't good enough for him to direct. I mean, maybe, but, you know, like Spielberg also used to produce a lot of stuff. But then again, none of it was as good as his movie. So maybe you're right there. I don't know. <laughs> but um, uh, he, he's producing it. He's also gearing up to direct, you know, Black Panther 2. So he's busy with that. And he's also producing uh, Space Jam 2. So he's a busy guy. But it, it's cool that he's using, you know, the clout that he's built up from, uh, you know, his career and Black Panther being a huge hit to bring about the these really interesting sounding projects another comic book adaptation coming from another uh superhero director james wan is going to be boarding gideon falls uh this is a comic book i haven't read yet i i have it on my ipad i've been meaning to read this because i've heard such good things but uh brad what do we know Yes, for those who don't know, Gideon Falls is an Image Comics comic book series created by uh, Jeff Jeff Lemire, Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. Uh, it is a, uh, a horror comic book that follows an ensemble cast of seemingly random strangers, a washed-up Catholic priest, an uncompromising female sheriff, and a young recluse obsessed with unraveling a conspiracy buried in his city's trash as they become drawn into a mystery connected to a long-forgotten local legend. Uh, this was already in the works from um, uh, the production company Hivemind, and they announced today that they're teaming up with James Wan and his Atomic Monster production company for this adaptation. Uh, as we, we just talked about, uh, a, a director coming on board a project but not directing it, uh, that's exactly what James Wan is doing, except in TV it's a little bit more important when you're producing it, and he's uh, the, he will be an executive producer on this series, along with Michael Clear from uh, Atomic Monster, and also Hivemind's team of uh, executive producers that includes Jason Brown, Sean Daniel, Kathy Ling, uh, and Dinesh Shamdasani, as well as the comics creators. Uh, and yeah, so that's pretty much what we know right now. It doesn't seem. Do like... we know for sure he's not going to be directing? Because a lot of times when someone like this, a big filmmaker, comes on board a series like this, they direct the pilot episode. Unless they uh, are holding that back, or maybe they're still trying to figure that out, the press release only says that he is executive producing. Ah. Uh. Yeah, so there's not, nothing in here about, about him directing. Um, so there, I, I suppose there's a chance that that could uh, happen at some at some point if they, if they figure it out. But I imagine they're probably just cool with having him on board as an executive producer. Yeah, and, and the, one of the reasons that does happen is the, the person who directs the pilot, the director of the pilot, gets a lot more money because they get um, – what do you call that? Residuals for every single episode th that goes on because they were the person who cast it. They were the one that set the mood, the tone, the look. Um, so you end up seeing like a lot of people like, you know, Brian Singer came in and directed the the pilot of House and probably made a fortune off that. Um, but OK, uh, do we know where this sh series is going to air? We do not. It does not uh, currently have a home for distribution. So. Uh, I would imagine they're probably going to look for a streaming service uh, since this is, it's a horror series and you usually don't want that kind of show to be doled down by uh, network sensors. Um, there's a chance it could end up on cable since cable has gotten a little bit more daring and edgy with the uh, genre fair. So we'll, we'll just have to wait and see where it goes. Halloween season has begun. It's now October and you're talking about horror. Let's talk about Eli Roth. He is going to be making a Halloween horror film but not about michael myers not that halloween chris what do we know 
Right. And once again, this is a story about someone producing, not directing. But in this case, I'm fine with that because I think Eli Roth is kind of a bad director. But he is producing this new film called 1031. And as you can tell from the title, it's it's set on Halloween. And it's about um, a woman who takes her niece trick-or-treating and then the niece gets a note in her candy bag and the note warns that there's a serial killer lurking on the block. And uh, while that's not the most original premise in the world, I immediately want to see this because I am a sucker for all things Halloween and I will definitely watch this whenever it gets made. Okay. Um, uh, let's move on to Treasure Island. Uh, last week we were talking about how D- director Dean Dublas of How to Train Your Dragon had signed on to do a Micronauts movie, and now he's signing on to do a new Treasure Island film. Brad, what do we know? Yes, it seems uh, Dean Dublas is going to be very busy in the near future because Universal has hired him for a new adaptation uh, of Treasure Island, which is the classic Robert Louis Stevenson novel. Uh, It's been adapted plenty of times before. Uh, It's probably one of the most famous adventure stories of all time. Dean DeBlas will be directing uh, with a script from Evan Spilatopoulos, who wrote Beauty and the Beast. uh, And they'll both be collaborating on the story together. Is this Uh, a live action film or is this animated? Because I know Disney a few years back did uh, Treasure Planet, which is kind of a reworking of Treasure Island it is live action, so it's a departure from his work on How to Train Your Dragon, and it is only his second live action film. Very cool. I'm I'm excited to see what Dean Dubois does in live action because I was really impressed by the How to Train Your Dragon movies, even even in the middle part that wasn't uh, as good as the the first or third installments. I feel like visually it was breathtaking, and I'm I'm curious to see if he can bring that to live action. Um, in a way that, you know, like Brad Bird and other directors like that have done. Uh, but let's talk about we have two more stories to get to. Uh, the first of which is Beverly Beverly Hills Cop 4, which apparently is happening after coming to America 2. Chris, what is going on here? Uh, yeah, so Eddie Murphy seems to be in the midst of a comeback. He's got uh, Dolomite Is My Name coming out this year, and he's he's earning... Uh, rave reviews for his work in that and justifiably so because he really is great in that and he's also in the midst of making Coming to America 2 which is something he's been talking about making for a very long time and another one of his sequels he's been talking about making for a very long time is Beverly Hills Cop 4 and apparently that is finally happening as well Um, in an interview with Collider he said uh, I'm paraphrasing obviously but he said that once they get done shooting coming to America 2, they're going to just start making Beverly Hills Cop 4. And um, there's no real uh, specific details yet on like who's directing it, who, what script they're using, but this has been uh, knocking around since the mid-90s. Um, at one point, Brett Ratner was going to direct. Obviously, that's not going to happen now. Uh, there was even um, a pilot shot for a Beverly Hills Cop TV series in which... Axel Foley, that's Eddie Murphy's character. His son was the main character, and Eddie Murphy cameoed as his character, who was now like a police chief, but uh, CBS, uh, who were going to make the show, ultimately passed on the pilot. So this has been just like I wonder a... why they would pass on that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but, um, but so, yeah, this has been, you know, sort of on again, off again for years, and now it seems like it might be on again um you know a a part of me is skeptical it's happening but 
you know, I was also skeptical that coming to America too was ever going to happen. Cause that was something that seemed to be talked about like every other year. And that really is happening. And I think this might happen now because Eddie Murphy really does seem like he's finally on, on a, a genuine comeback, not just, you know, a theoretical one. He really is in the midst of a comeback. Well, two questions here. First of all, why isn't coming to America two being called coming numeral two America? I, I mean, I think, it, I think it is, or at least it was referred to as such in some of the, the stories about the casting. So I think that there's a good chance that that will happen. Okay. Yeah. I won't be surprised if that is the official title. Yeah. And um, Beverly Hills cop, do we need another installment? No, we do not. Um, we do, I don't think we needed three of them, let alone four, but uh, we'll see. Brad, you're, you're more of the comedy guy on this podcast. Like, do we need another one? Like, is there more to be said here? And is Eddie Murphy like, do like what is going on with him? Because like, I feel like for years he was just doing these really wacky characters and seeing him return to more of an Eddie Murphy aesthetic. Do you know what I mean? Him being like a version of himself. I feel like that's going to be weird. Uh, I don't think it's going to be weird. I, I think it'll, it'll be more welcome than anything because a lot of the comedies uh, he's done since, you know, the nutty professor in the late nineties have been very bad. So I think him returning to the well of when he was at the height of his comedic fame and success is probably a good idea at this point. Um, I, I, for one, am very excited for coming to America, too. Uh, I'm not nearly as excited or interested in Beverly Hills Cop 4 simply because the Beverly Hills Cop movies had diminishing returns with Beverly Hills Cop 3 being significantly worse than Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh, so I... But there's always, you know, the chance that coming back after all these years, they could make it more fun, you know, now that he's he's aged and do something a little bit different than they've done previously with it. That's not to say that's anything very thrilling, since we've seen plenty of sequels and movies deal with the idea of, you know, an, an aging cop, uh, especially when it comes to, you know, legacy sequels and things like that. There's always that angle of, oh, these you know characters are older now and that kind of thing. So, uh you know, we'll see. But overall, I'm just very much uh, interested in the return of Eddie Murphy in this big way, you know, because he's, he's also supposed to be returning to stand up uh, very soon. And I just I hope that this, uh, you know, renaissance uh, return. Yeah, is that the right <laughs> word? I don't know. Yeah, just the resurgence of Eddie Murphy uh, coming the back. Murphy yeah, the Murphy sons. Uh, sure. <laughs> we, we need to come up with a better wording for a better title for this um okay it's so, murph it's murph in time murph in t- I, don't, I don't know <laughs> that's uh okay lastly uh tonight is triple force friday uh as the new star wars toys come out for rise of skywalker and mandalorian and other stuff uh by the way i looked online i'm in la i'm in a big market and there it really isn't many stores that i can go to near me like there's really nothing close to me where i can go so it's kind of disappointing i was gonna actually make the trek out tonight um but uh let's talk about rise of skywalker because the media publicity for that film is is starting to heat up uh they've revealed a new photo of babu frick uh who we talked about last week but uh the screenwriter of Rise of Skywalker did uh, did a new interview and there's some some bits and pieces from that that you wrote up for the site Brad uh tell us about it. Yes, Chris Terrio is the writer of Star Wars the Rise of Skywalker. He previously wrote Argo for Ben Affleck. 
Uh, and he spoke to Empire Magazine for their recent big cover issue on the forthcoming end of the Skywalker saga. And he said that there are basically two big questions that they use to help drive the narrative of the rise of Skywalker. Uh, one of them is one that a lot of people have been asking since the beginning of Force Awakens, uh, and it has to do with who is Rey. And so it's it's not just a question of uh, where does she come from as far as her parentage and uh, you know who she is literally, but r really this idea of who she is as a character. Uh, you know what lies inside of her. What's her driving force? You know what gives her this strength and power. And you know what will she do when faced with the more literal uh, answers to the question of who she is and where she she came from. Uh, so that makes us think that we'll definitely find out more about her past in Rise of Skywalker. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how J.J. Abrams wraps that up and if there's any sort of uh, retconning or additional details that she does not yet know about. I don't think there's going to be retconning, but I do feel like a lot of people left Last Jedi still thinking that, that it wasn't definitively explained. I mean, partly because there's, you know, a character who is an unreliable narrator re relaying that information to her in a way that uh, is reflecting her own thoughts in a way. So uh, I, I think we're going to get a definitive, like, you know, where did she come from? Does it even matter um, kind of thing in this? Yeah. And then uh, the second question is, uh, how strong is the Force? And I think that's uh, a much more interesting question than the idea of where Ray comes from, simply because we've seen the Force sort of evolve in this trilogy, and we've learned other things that people are capable of by using the Force. And we've always known that the Force is more than just the ability to, you know, trick people with your their minds and move stuff, uh, you know, with, uh, you know, what amounts to telekinetic powers, basically. You know, the, the Force is something that exists in everyone. But it's just a matter of, you know, how strong the Force is. You know, uh, what is the Force? I, and I think that we're going to see, you know, maybe maybe the, the limits of it or how it uh, affects, you know, people more, you know, beyond how Jedi and Sith use it and things like that. Yeah. Well, Last Jedi definitely, you know, showed us some new sides to the Force, like Force projection and some other stuff like that. So um, I'm wondering, and the cover of the art of Rise of Skywalker, I think kind of teases this idea that they could be fighting, having a lightsaber battle in two different places at one time. So I'm excited to see how this movie expands upon those ideas and uh, the idea of the force. So uh, anyways, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. We'll see you tomorrow.